The following is a message by Dr. Brian D. Estelle from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. This morning I want to draw your attention to two passages. We'll focus on one passage um, but for the reading of God's Word this morning, I would like you to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. First of all, a familiar passage to all of you, I'm sure, where we have the inauguration of the Davidic covenant, or the pronouncement of the Davidic covenant by David. And then we'll read 1 Kings 11, 1 through 13. So we're working our way through 1 and 2 Kings this semester, and I want to give you a kind of orientation to uh, the kings. So first of all, notice 2 Samuel 7. I'll read from verses 12 through 17. This is God's very word. Please give uh, careful attention to it. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And then turning over to 1 Kings chapter 11, I'll read verses 1 through 13. This, of course, uh, focuses on David's son, namely Solomon. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign wives, or foreign women, besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, for, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And so the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, 
I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, and yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask that he would illumine our hearts and minds to understand it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes to your word, send now your Holy Spirit, and grant that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your word, O Lord. We ask this for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. The Westminster Larger Catechism asks the question, number 45, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? To which it answers, Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, censures by which he visibly governs them, in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience, correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and for their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. Now that's a beautiful summary of the office of king which Christ ultimately fulfills. And all of us need a king, especially to subdue uh, our sins and to govern our actions. And what I'd like you to see this morning in this brief meditation upon Solomon is a kind of orientation to how we understand the kings in the book of Kings. Because they're to be understood in light of the covenant made with David and that great promise that Nathan um, foretells to David that he will accomplish two things through his life. He will indeed raise up from his own progeny a ruler who will sit upon the throne and in a particular place in Jerusalem. And he promises that this will be an eternal covenant and that it will be fulfilled. So there's principles when you turn to the kings in First and Second Kings that every time you see a Judahite king fail, that begs the question, who will fulfill this obedience? And every time you see a Judahite king fail, then there's a necessity of a penal substitution that needs to be paid for that failure. And every time you see a king succeed, that portends the righteousness of a greater king who would fulfill the Davidic covenant, namely, ultimately, Christ himself. And so we see the active obedience uh, given there in shadowy form, one king after another, although it's much easier to see the need for passive obedience because few and far between is the relative obedience of these kings in Judah. Now, when you look at these chapters leading up to this climactic chapter describing Solomon's fall, it can be organized in the following way. The first eight chapters, generally speaking, are somewhat favorable to Solomon, and you have wisdom from above. Solomon's characterized as the quintessential wise king. Okay? And the first eight chapters give all kinds of demonstrable examples about how Solomon is a wise king. 
But then in chapters 9 to 11, these chapters are somewhat critical of Solomon. You might say these exemplify wisdom from below and the sad progression towards Solomon's ultimate failure. First of all, wisdom from above. You notice that Solomon prays for a wise and discerning heart, and you all know the story. He's given one. What a beautiful prayer. Not for my own sake, but for the sake of these people whom you have given me charge over so that I might rule them. And so God appears to him in a dream and says, I will give you a wise and discernible heart because you've not asked for it for yourself, but rather for the sake of ruling over these people. And then, of course, that classic and great story about women and wisdom and making this uh, just preeminent, judicious, wise decision in this court case that he has to adjudicate. Chapters 3, 1 through 15. And then in chapter 4, 1 through 20, you have the administration and wisdom. And then Solomon has gained such a reputation of being so wise in chapters 4 through 5, 8, you have Solomon and the rest of the world. And Solomon's kingdom now has the parameters and borders which fulfill and echo the very borders that indeed were prescribed and foretold way back in Genesis 15. There's an echo there. The kingdom has reached its apex, so to speak, its relative apex, and its climax in Solomon's rule. And then, of course, in chapters 6 through 8, the temple. So overall, Solomon is portrayed as a relatively faithful worshiper in these early years. But then wisdom from below is exemplified. And in chapters 9 and following, as Ian Proven says, the focus of First and Second Kings in particular is overall upon the failure of the Israelite monarchy to govern the people justly in accordance with the divine will with the ultimate consequence that Israel will indeed be absorbed into the foreign empires. You see, because throughout these chapters, there's this very somber if conditional clause which keeps popping up. Look, for example, at chapter 3 of 1 Kings, verse 14 and 15, if you have a Bible. And notice what it says. So you have all these glorious promises of the Davidic covenant. But then verse 14 and 15 of chapter 3. If you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized that he had had a dream. And then look at chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. And there you get this somber if that jumps off the page again. The word of the Lord came to Solomon, as for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees and carry out my regulations and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people, Israel. So Walter Brueggemann is right when he's talking about the Mosaic economy and he's talking about the kings and he says, there's a certain kind of contractual theology that goes on here that should give us pause before we describe what's going on in this particular situation as being all of grace. In other words, there is a works principle embedded here, and it's there for a purpose. And there are conditions during this time period about which I won't go into at any length right now. You'll have to hear about that 
elsewhere, which I'm sure you will. But look at Solomon's demise. These indeed are conditions contrary to fact. They are not going to come true. With women and wisdom, the, the, the structure of these chapters is absolutely beautiful because you get these echoes and these panels that are reflecting earlier discussions and topics. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, the Queen of Sheba comes to test him with kidoth, hard riddles. Wealth and wisdom, chapter 10, verse 14 to 29. Descriptions of shields made with gold, the king's throne, verses 18 to 20. Numerous chariots and horses, gifts from neighboring kingdoms. And although the Queen of Sheba had mentioned his wealth before, now the narrator reverses the order. So something else is going on. Surely enough, with Genesis 17 as a foil, describing everything that the ideal king in Israel was to do, Solomon is pointed out as being the exact opposite of that. So finally, wisdom from below. Solomon dishonors God in his own home, verses 1 through 13. And there's the final address, the fourth and final address in this section by God in these chapters and here comes judgment. Democles' sword drops. Your kingdom will be ripped out from your midst. Solomon's sins, verses 1 to 8, we read about. The announcement of judgment, verses 9 through 13. The implementation of judgment, we didn't read about, but if we kept reading in verses 14 up all the way through 40, we would see that indeed Solomon and his kingdom are doomed. Solomon's been a fool. He's not been the hoped-for king that not only was promised to David, but is also characterized in the Proverbs. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. No, he's followed after idols. He's broken the first commandment and many more besides. He is not the answer to the promise of the Davidic covenant. Solomon has lost his wisdom. What's the goal of wisdom? To develop mental discernment and moral skill. Solomon has failed. But Jesus Christ comes to be the perfect Davidic king. You see, there's two levels going on with these kings. Judah assumed the position of royal supremacy in Israel. And with the appointment of David and with his successors, every king that follows in the train of David and is a Judahite king is on the level of typology, building to the ultimate fulfillment, namely that which comes in Jesus Christ, when the level of typology disappears and the antitype comes and reality sets in. Just listen briefly. Christ is the true son of David, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Christ is the son of God, Acts chapter 13, many other passages. Christ is the true king shepherd, Matthew 2, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 and 26. Christ is the temple builder, John 2.19, Ephesians 2.19-21. Everything in these kings points forward to the king to come, namely Christ. The shadows have passed away. 
the ifs no longer are burdening your shoulders if you be in Christ because you have a king. You have someone who can rule over you. You have someone who has conquered all your enemies and will conquer all your enemies. You have someone that governs you and will govern you and subdue your sins. And if you know your own heart and you know all the temptations which befall especially students of theology and those aspiring to the most noble office, namely the ministry, you will be fraught with all kinds of temptations and you need someone to govern you. But thanks be to God that he has given you Christ. What should your attitude be, having received this king? It's summed up no better, I think, outside scripture, than by John Donne in Holy Sonnet number 14. Students, this should be your attitude. As you cast yourself upon the king that God the Father has provided in the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, namely in Christ Jesus, for you, your penalty payer and probation keeper. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason? Your viceroy and me, me should defend, but as captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me pray. Father, we thank you that indeed you are in control of the entire course of history. We thank you that your word is always true and amen, and you do not fail in the fulfillment of any of its promises, whether for our forefathers in exile or for us and along our pilgrim way, O Lord. You will make good on your words. You indeed bring everything to completion in your perfect time. Father, we thank you that you have brought a king who is reliable, in whom we can trust, in whom we can glory. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to lean on him, to depend upon him, to look to him for all our sustenance, especially in this life here upon this campus, as we found ourselves in the midst of the challenges of theological study. Father, accomplish this, we do pray. Subdue our sins, govern us, rule us, ravish us by your love. And as you do so, and as you grant success, and as you improve us, O oh Lord, by your grace, as you cause us to mortify our sins, we will be very, very careful to showcase your glory and the glory of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our King, in whose name we pray, amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. 
You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.